Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. I'm Alex Thorne, the head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I'm joined as always by members of the Galaxy Digital Research team. Today I have Christine Kim, Saul Kadir, and Lule Mascal. Hey, everyone. Hello, what's up? Hello, hello. Hey, how's it going? Great to have you all with us. Um, we have named the podcast Galaxy Brains, which we're, we're quite happy about. You're going to hear from Galaxy Digital's research team every week uh, at a minimum. And this is that, uh, th this is that podcast, um, that th our weekly podcast. We're going to talk about today three uh, big stories we're following. Specifically, first, we're going to talk about Terra USD, uh, the stablecoin of the Luna ecosystem, adding Bitcoin as a collateral type. Um, we're going to talk about um, staked ETH through Lido, which is a Ethereum beacon chain staking pool um, and the incredible growth that we've seen there. And then we're going to discuss the launch or announced launch, I should say, of a native web uh, browser plugin based Avalanche wallet called Core um, and what that enhanced UI uh, should bring to the Avalanche ecosystem. So. Again, thank you everyone for joining. Let's talk. Let's dive into this Luna Bitcoin thing. Um, it was big news. The Luna Foundation Guard, which is the sort of foundation that supports the Luna ecosystem, um, announced, uh, I think, last week that they're going to add Bitcoin as a collateral type for Terra USD, also known as UST, um, which is interesting for a lot of reasons. Not the least, of, not the least of which being that. Terra is an algorithmic stablecoin that is currently essentially not backed by collateral. Um, Lule, you've been looking at this. Can you give us an overview of uh, what, it, what it is I'm talking about here, this Luna BTC tie-up? Right, right, yeah. Al algorithmic stablecoins have uh, um, a negative connotation because in the past uh, they've failed. Um, and so they're, the LFG or Luna um, Guard is, is ushering in a new development by instead of um, collateralizing UST with Luna, they're bringing in Bitcoin. Uh, so just to set the stage, algorithmic stablecoins uh, kind of compare to debt-based stablecoins uh, like MakerDAO. And so debt-based stablecoins are safer, but they also require more collateral. Um, each stablecoin requires more than a dollar of collateral. So being that they're safer, they're harder to grow. Now the algorithmic coins offer the flip side, right? They can scale rapidly. Um, but they do because they do not require external collateral. Uh, but how are they? They have this risk and it's susceptible to what's called death spirals, um, and which I'll kind of go into later. So the Do Kwan and the LFG Foundation they wanted to bring BTC in to uh, attack this DPEG risk function and try to bring a solution to that. So they roughly have about $3 billion um, worth of Bitcoin in reserve now with the goal of adding $10 billion. Um, and there's no necessarily timeline on that, but they have committed to do that. Uh, so, you know, where's the, why are they doing this? Is to reduce the risk in the event of a massive outflow of, of US Terra. Um, this is because when US Terra is burned, um, or once, once, when it wants to be redeemed, you're given Luna in exchange, thereby creating Luna and increasing the Luna supply. And you can imagine that has an effect on uh, Luna price. There's kind of two ways that this death spiral can happen, but it always will end with more Luna being created. And the issue is, instead of trying to create this Luna, now they're bringing Bitcoin in as a option to mint um, in these times of, vol of volatility and, and um, uh, when there's a bank run on UST, essentially. So that's so really Lule, the main goal. Uh, Lule, so today, uh, to create 
Terra, um, which is the stable coin, UST, um, you burn Luna, correct? Correct. Absolutely. It's essentially just a swap, burning Luna to mint UST. But the Luna doesn't go into, the Luna is actually burned from the supply. It doesn't go into some collateral vault or something. Absolutely. It does, which is actually yeah. what allows Luna in, on the price-wise to, to move up as well. It has a dramatic effect on Luna and market price. And so how much, how much Terra uh, USD or US, UST is in supply today? UST supply today, I believe, is around 15 billion. So, and that's been growing dramatically. And there's never been, has there ever been like a significant, um, you know, decline in, in circulating UST supply because of, you know, redemptions? There, there hasn't yet. And so this has actually come about because of the concern of what if that happens. So Doquan and the LFG came up with this new development on, on using Bitcoin to essentially get ahead of it to prevent this from happening in the future. Do we know where they're buying their Bitcoin uh, for this collateral reserve? So we don't. We don't. That's a great question. Um, we don't know. They don't know the schedule and we don't know when. But a lot of people speculate that the recent uh, Bitcoin pump uh, a couple of days ago actually was due to this purchase uh, that he said he would do or the foundation would do. Um, it's also right, important which was an initial like. What was that like over a hundred million dollars or so is seen yeah. moving? Yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, in another interesting thing to do is, is is to note that the Bitcoin to Luna reserve that percentage has a very big effect on the burn rate of Luna, and also can have a very big effect on Bitcoin because this all this Bitcoin is going to be locked away. It's going to be untouchable, and if they are going to be buying this mu this much, that means there's going to be a constant bid for that. Um, and so the size of UST will have a direct linear relationship to the amount of BTC reserves. Yeah. So if UST will continue to grow, the BTC reserves will continue to grow. Fascinating. I mean, and, and as far as uh, we know, um, this is real Bitcoin on, on Bitcoin, not wrapped Bitcoin or, or some derivative Bitcoin, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is this is real Bitcoin. And that's part of what uh, Do Kwon would talk about in the Twitter space as well, is they are deploying, will be deploying a smart contract on Terra that allows this mint of UST to Bitcoin and Bitcoin to, to, to UST. And it's important to note that when you do burn that UST to redeem Bitcoin, you are taking, they are taking a 1% VIG to disincentivize you from choosing Bitcoin. So it's only used in these volatile times. Uh, and then yeah. one other last thing I kind of want to note that was really interesting that, that Do Kwon said is someone asked him, why did you choose Bitcoin? Well, he, he gave three reasons. Um, Bitcoin is the best reserve digital asset, period. Second, uh, for decentralized stable coins, they need a decentralized reserve. And lastly, he believed that it is the asset with the least developer-driven catalyst that will affect price in the future. So I think those are three interesting reasons that, uh, that, that, that decided to do that. Oh, that's fascinating. So one, um, a lot of people have called Bitcoin pristine collateral because it's so um, reliable from a decentralization standpoint. Um, and, and so, you know, global, liquid, secure, right? Um, easy to transfer, blah, 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 right? And um, it makes sense to me uh, as a use of Bitcoin. I, I certainly view Bitcoin as extremely high quality collateral with essentially no, no third party intermediary or liability. And I like to hear uh, that they're using Bitcoin on chain, presumably with some kind of multi-sig, um, you know, set up to, to secure that Bitcoin because, you know, adding, you know, using some derivative version of Bitcoin on either, you know, like wrap Bitcoin or, 
or something like RenVTC or, or even something on you know, a network like ThorChain adds significant additional complexity and, and sort of degrades the pristineness of that collateral, right? By adding custodial risk and smart contract risk and all this other stuff. So um, I, I love the use of it. I think Bitcoin is great collateral. It's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, how this affects. I mean, you've now got a giant, assuming Terra UST's supply continues to grow, you've now got a giant, you know, sort of perpetual Bitcoin bid out there. Um, and fascinating to see it coming from a from another altcoin project. Absolutely, it really is. And and uh, Doug Kwan specifically says it's 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 a, a, a Bitcoin maximalist building outside of Bitcoin. <laughs> I wonder also, what the Bitcoin maximalist would say about that. <laughs> One thing I'll note that I thought was also interesting about Doug Kwan's tweet is that on top of just accumulating 10 billion, like that amount of Bitcoin, it's also that the technical infrastructure to bridge those reserves to the Terra chain, like that technical infrastructure of bridging is just not according to, to Doquan ready for prime time yet. And we've seen um, significant hacks with inter-blockchain bridges, if we remember the wormhole exploit, I think that it'll be interesting to see what technology they come up with to create a decentralized, secure, permissionless way to bridge BTC reserves to the Terra chain. And with that amount of value at stake, we know that it's going to be, it's going to be um, scrutinized heavily by all types of people who, who want to see if they can try and unlock that value. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I also like the other point, uh, that third point, Lule, that you said that Doe mentioned, which was that Bitcoin's development is the least likely, uh, you know, or, or development is the least likely on Bitcoin um, to affect price, right? To, to essentially make Bitcoin unstable. I think that's a really fascinating um, way of looking at Bitcoin's conservative development roadmap um, as a positive. Um, in fact, if you there was a pretty widely read tweet, uh, a little thread from the lead, I think the lead maintainer of Ethereum um, at the Ethereum Foundation, where he talked about um, complexity, right, being a huge problem, not just for Ethereum, but in general in systems, right, and, and minimizing complexity, right, being a should should be a goal for all system design, and and he was a bit critical of, I mean, of course, the project that. I think, I, and I forget the uh, the guy's name here. So really, Peter Sizagali. Thank you. It was uh, not that I forget it. I didn't want to mispronounce it. So Peter, um, he he was making this point for Ethereum specifically, right? And I think that goes to your point, Christine, about bridges and 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 why I'm happy that at least until something is you know that's vetted that can handle that kind of um, you know Bitcoin, we don't want to see Bitcoin lost um, in service of for any purpose, but in certainly in service of, you know, collateralizing an altcoin, stablecoin ecosystem. So keeping that Bitcoin on Bitcoin uh, for now and so using something simple like uh, and powerful, like a native multi-sig seems like a great approach um, in the near term. Really interesting. Um, you know, I, I, the, the use of Bitcoin outside Bitcoin is always interesting. Um, and I think we're going to see it more. Um, let's move on. Uh, we'll talk about um, staked ETH. Um, Christine's going to tell us about Lido, the uh, Beacon Chain staking pool, uh, which has been seeing incredible growth over the last uh, few weeks, right, Christine? 
It has. Um, ever since the launch of Ethereum's Kiln testnet, which basically piloted the merge upgrade, we saw deposit deposits into the ETH staking pool Lido just skyrocket. Last Tuesday, Lido saw its largest daily deposit of ETH, 197,000 ETH deposited in just one day. And in the week following, total deposits reached up to 433,000 ETH. So I mean, if you look at the total amount of ETH that's that's staked right now, Lido is by far the largest staking pool. It controls 32% of total ETH at stake right now in the beacon chain. So um, I think we're, we're, I personally think that we're going to start to see even more influx of users trying to capture some yield from ETH staking the closer we get to the merge. Um, and we're already starting to see more staking products being created through DeFi protocols. This week, DeFi yield aggregator Yearn Finance launched a new product that would be able to enable users to deposit any major ERC-20 token that includes ETH, USDC, and basically start earning interest on these staked ETH derivatives like Steph, like Ref. Um, because of the of, of the products that have already been built on on things like Curve, which is like a stablecoin decentralized exchange, um, so this really highlights the expanding role of of staked ETH tokens in the DeFi ecosystem that I think is only going to keep growing um, the more the more the closer we get to the merge and and after the merge is activated. It's fascinating because one of the reasons people, some some may have been wary of staking their ETH on the Beacon Chain, right, is that that ETH is essentially locked until the Beacon Chain actually launches. Um, and I think theoretically, if the Beacon Chain never launches, that ETH is essentially lost, right, which is, there was a little, um, and, and this, on the flip side, when we saw the staking on the Beacon Chain grow significantly last year, that was seen essentially as a vote of confidence by the Ethereum community that the Beacon Chain would eventually launch. Right. Um, but with but with Lido and and some of these other staking pools, you can actually you get these. You're talking about Steph, you know, Steeth. I don't know Steph, Reef, Ref. Um, these derivative versions of staked ETH, um, they can trade and are liquid, right? So now you're you're trading basically IOUs that entitle you to redeem staked ETH, obviously at such point that that's possible, right? Right. And the yield on these Steph Reth, I don't even know how, how we want to pronounce these ones, but we're just going to go early. with, we're just going to go with I like Steph. Steph. We're just going to go with Steph. The yield on these liquid staking pools is highly variable. Um, not only because depending on the liquid staking protocol, they'll have different um, requirements in terms of collateral and redemption, but also because on the very base layer of Ethereum, the beacon chain itself, yield for a validator changes depending on how much ETH is at stake on the network. So for your derivative um, your derivative staking STEF or REF, whatever you call it, to continue to accurately track exactly how much yield a certain validator is getting depending on their performance, how much ETH is at stake, fees on the network, um, it starts to get very complicated. And I'm quite interested in seeing how these staking pools after the merge will, and after withdrawals are enabled, will continue to make sure that that kind of return and that kind of, of, of um, value creation and yield um, 
stays in line with market demand and stays in line with the actual underlying base rewards that's coming out of the protocol. So, so it's it's a pretty complex system, but I think one that already users are are just so hungry for. Yeah, there's that complexity popping up again. Um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, there's been, I think, a lot of, you know, with the Kiln testnet, which you wrote about in our newsletter last week, and we briefly mentioned, I think, on the podcast last week, um, having been successful in activating the merge on testnet, right? Um, there's been a huge amount of interest in 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 Ethereum uh, over just the last week. Everyone's been talking about how uh, uh, the, the merge is going to happen. People are very bullish on now it occurring because Kiln was a success. And I think now you, you know, we talked about people staking early on the Beacon chain being bullish on the Beacon chain actually succeeding. Now it feels like confidence has increased significantly in the Ethereum community. And, and, and perhaps that's the huge reason now um, for, for these growing deposits. But also the the idea that you can both stake and trade your ETH at the same time, essentially, which is this idea behind these liquid staking tokens. Um, gosh, that's interesting, but raises to me a lot of questions. And we're going to have to think through what the security implications are if you can essentially, that ETH is supposed to be sitting there locked in inert, right? And what happens if, say, the collateral of these liquid staking tokens, which, right, is locked ETH, um, you know, validators are slashed or if something happens on the network, like what the interplay between these uh, liquid staking tokens and the underlying staked ETH is, to your point about one question certainly is how they track properly the staked ETH, uh, how they track that underlying uh, Ethereum and, and the yield that is generated from, from staking or really the issuance that's collected from staking, but also just what the sort of interplay between them is and, and are there other implications? And it's going to be different depending on whether or not the staking pool, staking as a service provider you're using is decentralized or centralized, because staked is a pretty famous or pretty popular, I guess, centralized lender that did see a large number of their validators slashed early on in the beacon chain. And they basically, because they're a centralized provider, was able to insure all of those deposits. They basically refunded um, all their users for the lost ETH from slashed validators. But when it comes to decentralized staking pools like Rocket Pool, that's um, the second uh, largest ETH staking pool, it controls, I think, about um, 5%, I would say, or around 5% of the liquid staking pool market. If by chance validators are slashed on that network, all of the all of the um, all of the risk falls on the node operator. It falls on the users of the protocol. Um, and in that sense, I mean, are we going to see kind of like a spiraling out of of control with with collateral um, being pulled and and value dropping in the ref? staked derivative token. Um, these are these are areas of risk, protocol risk that I think is inherent to any kind of decentralized application. But when you add in the complexity of staking dynamics from the beacon chain, mm -hmm. it gets even worse. That's so interesting. And one other thing to bring up, which is, I guess, semi-related because um, it in this People talk about uh, validating validator nodes on proof of stake networks generating a yield. I hate saying that. I, I they're collecting issuance, right? This is monetary 
uh, base inflation that, that occurs, right? Just like, you know, um, but it, it's gonna also change. There is separately a change coming uh, uh, in Ethereum's issue and schedule and dynamics, right? Because today what uh, each block mine can conveys with it a two ETH uh, uh, block subsidy, right? And that's, that's inflation um, of the monetary base, but, and that's a per block issuance, similar to Bitcoin, right? Which is a 6.25 BTC per block issuance today um, that's paid to the miner. But how's it going to change going forward when the merge happens? It's going to change pretty significantly. Instead of block rewards, so the fixed two ETH per block, now you're going to have a certain percentage of all total ETH staked um, increasing by a certain percentage. So right now there's a roughly 10 million ETH locked in the beacon chain. That equates to about 0.44% annualized inflation, an increase I, of supply, 0.44% of that 10 million um, increasing over the year. But let's say ETH the 10 million ETH locked in the network goes down significantly. Then that annualized inflation rate will change. Um, and so it's a dynamically changing issuance rate that will make Ethereum's monetary policy significantly harder to predict. However, I will point out that Ethereum developers, even with fixed block rewards, have changed that pretty like on the fly ad hoc. It used to be five ETH per block and then they changed it to three ETH per block and now and then they changed it to two ETH. So I mean, really the fact that we have now something hard coded into the protocol, even if it is dynamic, I think is slightly more predictable than leaving it to mm -hmm. developers to change on a whim. Yeah, I think that's a fair point um, that, right, it, it'll be dynamic and that's harder to predict uh, than just knowing it's currently fixed. But Hopefully, uh, your point, I, I suppose, is that hopefully um, that dynamic issuance mechanism won't change, hopefully, right? Um, and that, but look, I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i always been a critic of this as a Bitcoiner, right? The, the unpredictability of Ethereum's monetary policy, because it has been, developers have intervened in the protocol several times to change it, right? And and I'm of the belief for Bitcoin that the, the sort of real game changer isn't actually that Bitcoin's supply terminates at a fixed point of 20 million, 21 million coins, well, although that certainly is you know, revolutionary and obviously important, but it's actually that Bitcoin's monetary policy is credibly unchanging right, and predictable. So for example, like if Satoshi had said, we're going to have this X permanent uh, annualized inflation rate or this permanent block reward, but it will never change. To me, that's almost as powerful as saying that, you know, it terminates at a fixed supply of 21 million. Obviously, that Satoshi chose to have it terminate. Now, it needs, it is credibly unchanging. So that is where it has to stay. And I'm, and I'm certainly for it. Um, but it's, I think that's, that's never been something in my view that Ethereum competes with Bitcoin on the credibly unchanging nature, transparent, predictable nature of monetary policy. And frankly, I don't think that's what most people who invest in Ethereum are investing in it for either. No, not at all. If you're if you're investing in Ethereum, I think you're investing in it for the revolutionary novel tech that it's pushing and in ways that, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin developers don't, their value proposition is that Bitcoin isn't going to change as a protocol, whereas Ethereum is, is betting since its genesis that this proof of stake merge was going to happen. So I think, I think like, even if you were in on the, on the ICO of Ethereum, you always anticipated some 
big, heavy technical changes to the protocol made so that the value of Ethereum would continue to, to grow and to prosper. And I think we're already starting to see a lot of bullish sentiment um, happening because now Ethereum developers are finally starting to, to be close to activating, um, activating Serenity, activating the merge, activating its transition to proof of stake. And they used to say that the proof of stake was the like would be the final development for ETH, but now they don't say that either. There's a lot more supposedly in the pipeline, right? It's true. It's true. I don't think developers ever really anticipated this amount of interest and user adoption and growth in such a short period of time. I think they um, overestimated, I guess, the the bounds, the scalability of the technology of Ethereum. Um, but I I have high hopes that that over the years, Ethereum will slowly but surely um, require and need less changes. I think with the scalability roadmap, with this transition to proof of stake, Ethereum is heading in the right direction in terms of becoming a protocol that might one day, like Bitcoin, only require maintenance instead of these very uh, ambitious, radical changes. I think these changes are, are, are making Ethereum more durable for the, for the long term. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this to jump on what you said about the the dynamic inflation. It's kind of it, it's a it's it's a utopia for economic theory. It's this idea that engagement in an economy is what drives the inflation rate, and if engagement drops, then inflation rate should drop. So I think that's super bullish and and an incredible technology that that I I think if it could, could stay and exist without any new developments, as Alex said, uh, that itself is is a really incredible addition. Awesome. Uh, thanks for this. This was a great conversation on Stake the ETH. Um, Actually, let's go to I wanted the to add, oh, I wanted to add ahead, one Saul. quick point on uh, Lido. So I think obviously the ETH stuff is super interesting. I don't think it ends with ETH. Um, Lido also controls or rather uh, facilitates $300 million worth of Solana staking, uh, which is good for 1% of all stake Solana, which is good for top 20 validators. If theoretically they control all the validators, which they don't, uh, what they do is they help distribute that stake to uh, the long tail of validators in Solana and theoretically help decentralize stake. Uh, but this is interesting because if you look at the top validators today, it's mostly centralized exchanges, which has always been a concern with proof of stake generally is giant bag holders like exchanges can very, very, very easily uh, have major influence on POS networks versus proof of work, which is an entirely different business model. So to the extent players like Lido can actually capture users and convince them to use the platform to stake with, with incentives like liquid staking and be able to use your asset things uh, and not have them locked up and still get some of that yield back. Um, that could potentially help combat the narrative that centralized exchanges will dominate POS, which is an important story, I think. And uh, certainly they, they're making major waves on that front. That's a great point. Um... Let's go to our third story. Uh, Saul, you're going to tell us about this new Avalanche wallet, which you know we understand is really important as Avalanche moves to launch its subnets, which are those sort of, um, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe the modular like, additional blockchains that connect yeah. into the Avalanche ecosystem. Right, right. They're basically like application-specific blockchains that kind of competes with like Cosmos hubs of the world. Um, so let's zoom out a bit. What, what's the announcement about? Basically, Avalanche already has a wallet. Uh, I think it's wallet.avalanche or avax.network. If you've been on the New York subway, you've seen those ads for that wallet, which is kind of weird. I don't know why they have that because uh, it's a very complicated wallet. <laughs> it takes up an entire web page. 
And uh, a lot of my friends that are not in crypto, like go on it and they, they ask me what to do. And I tell them, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, so they finally woke up and realized they need a more usable wallet. And that's what this big announcement's about. It's called Avalanche Core. And it's there's two phases to this launch. Phase one is going to be a browser-based wallet, similar to MetaMask, similar to Phantom. Uh, these really popular real wallets that people use. Phase two will be a mobile application launching sometime in Q2. And the reason why this is a big deal is that there's two uh, key features that are enabled by this specific wallet, this Avalanche Core wallet. Um, the first is it's going to now allow for native Bitcoin bridging into the Avalanche um, ecosystem. And it's also going to be native to Avalanche. So unlike MetaMask, where you have to kind of select the Avalanche network to use it, uh, this is going to be specific for Avalanche applications. So we can kind of start with the BTC side of this. So what does that mean to be BTC native? Basically, if you have a ton of Bitcoin, users with a lot of Bitcoin bags, you can just bridge that Bitcoin directly into the AVAX ecosystem. And essentially one transaction in actuality, uh, this is probably going to look similar to their ETH AVAX bridge, which is, uh, it turns out that's the biggest bridge in the industry at six, about $6 billion in total value locked. Uh, it's, that bridge is popular because the UI is really good. The experience is really good. And I think they still airdrop a small amount of AVAX to cover fees if you bridge more than $70 worth of ETH. Um, so, so that bridge, quick aside, it's, it, it's actually two transactions. So you have your ETH, right? You fr it first wraps the ETH for you and it deposits it back into your wallet. And then that wrapped ETH is convert converted to this thing called wrappedETH.E. That .E at the end signals that the asset has successfully moved through the bridge and that wrappedETH.E is what you use with Avalanche native applications like Trader Joe, things like that. So we imagine that experience for Bitcoin is gonna look similar. And so instead of, if you wanted to, if you only had your crypto holdings of Bitcoin, for instance, which I'm sure a lot of people do, given that you know, Bitcoin market cap is more than double ETH market cap, uh, you would have less taxable events and it would just be a simpler UI for you to start participating and playing around with DeFi, playing around with Web3 applications. Um, so that's kind of why I think that's a huge deal. And they figured out how to do that uh, from a technical perspective within the same user interface of their native uh, browser-based wallet, which is super cool. And I think uh, similar to the story with, with Luna and Bitcoin, you're unlocking this giant pile of money that's actually bigger than the current juggernaut ETH. And we might see you know tons of money flow through uh, because of that. And on the AVAX sort of native wallet side, what's interesting here, well, basically... What I think this is, is Avalanche is clearly seeing the value of good UI on the wallet side for driving adoption into you know, quote unquote Web3 and decentralized applications and DeFi. Um, so the old wallet was this really complicated and they still have it, of course. Um, it's this full page application. Um, it, that's, that was the only way you could do complicated um, transactions such as if you had Avalanche in the C chain and you wanted to move it to the P chain, which is used for delegating and val validating you would have to actually only, you could only do it through their wallet and it was a specific submenu. Um, and it seems like you know, up until recently that people only wanted to use the seed chain. So that refers to Avalanche that interacts with the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, and that's the AVAX that you can send to MetaMask. So, so now they're creating this browser-based wallet that theoretically, it wasn't actually included in the announcement, but I would imagine it includes some of that advanced functionality for swapping your AVAX into the different AVAX chains. Uh, why is this important? Well, subnets, which we talked about for a second, 
um, application-specific blockchains built on Avalanche that have valid their own set of validators. Uh, that's going to require you know to incentivize validators to decide to validate for subnets. They need to participate in the economics of validating, and so they'd want people to stake whatever that Avalanche token is to them. So in order for people to do that, it's not easy. Uh, you'd have to use that crazy wallet, and uh, I don't. I'm not even sure. Yeah, how one can integrate that separate web app into like their DeFi app, if that makes sense. So by doing it at the browser level, like Phantom, it's a very simple UI. It just overlays on top of the existing page and people can then see all of their AVAX assets. They could theoretically swap between the different chains um, for that subnet asset on AVAX. And not everybody's happy. All the stakeholders that are required for subnets to work, the developers, the subnet validators and the users can all kind of interact through this uh, simpler UI. And just mm -hmm. looking at recent news, just look at Venomask, they've raised 450 million at $7 billion valuation. They have 30 million MAUs. Uh, Solana in the last couple of months, uh, the privately owned Phantom Wallet also raised 1. Or 109 million at a $1.2 billion valuation with 1.8 million monthly active users. So I think Avalanche is kind of seeing that you know, these wallets are are driving a ton of activity. They're worth a lot. They're important gatekeepers for the ecosystem. And they, I think they want to recreate some of that magic that is driving adoption in other chains uh, into their own chain. Yeah, that makes sense. Big. Yeah, when I think of Web3 as a concept, um, I mostly think about the accountless internet, the idea of logging in and interacting with websites um, with cryptographic credentials as opposed to you know maintaining a set of logins and passwords and, and for every you know account that you have online and and giving personally identifiable information to every website you interact with right and so if that's what web3 is then obviously these these browse particularly browser based wallets um, really are a, a, maybe maybe even the crucial infrastructure to enable that to happen so for those trying to build and pursue a web3 uh, thesis uh, they're essential right that's absolutely right. And if I'm an application developer, because I like to think from that perspective, and I'm choosing what chain I want my app to be on, maybe it's an NFT marketplace or something something else. Now, I don't, you know, until basically this announcement, I would have a hard time choosing Avalanche because I would have to basically ask my user to set up a MetaMask, but then not use Ethereum with it, switch to AVAX, install AVAX into MetaMask. Uh, it's very complicated. You know, I could yeah. instead just use Phantom's API and that's a very clean UI. So I think with this wallet, developers that are agnostic to their favorite chain would be more incentivized to use the core wallets API to build applications on. And then that could support features like Avalanche NFTs. You could display them all in the wallet. You could swap within the wallet, um, similar to you know Phantom or even Kepler for Cosmos. You'd start having those advanced features in one place for the user. Awesome. That makes a ton of sense. Um, we'll have to see. It's not out yet, but it's coming out soon, apparently, right? Um, yeah. And um, yeah, especially for these like modular um, blockchains that have several chains and, and interlocking ecosystems. And if we get things like, you know, application specific chains, which subnets haven't actually launched on yet, right, on on mainnet AVAX. But when they do, right, mm -hmm. it's going to be very, we want to, you know, they want it to be easy for users to use these, you know, complicated chains. And so um, it seems like a huge development for the Avalanche ecosystem. Definitely. So definitely. out of 
curiosity, mm-hmm. how popular do you think the BTC AVAX bridge is going to be in comparison to the ETH AVAX bridge? Because I think when when wrapped BTC first launched on Ethereum, there was a lot of skepticism about Bitcoiners. Yeah. I mean, who would want to use their Bitcoin to interact with DeFi when DeFi, the view of many hardcore Bitcoiners is just like Ponzi schemes that scams. Um, but wrapped Bitcoin right now is the second largest like uh, smart contract in terms of, of ETH deposited on Ethereum. And, yeah. and I mean, some people still argue that a lot of that is from ETH holders rather than, you know, actual Bitcoiners wanting to interact with the Ethereum ecosystem. So I'm curious to know what your view is on the Bitcoiner stance on Avalanche and the use of that bridge. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's hard to say for sure. I would, I would imagine just given like the sheer numbers we're talking about, you know, $800 million market cap versus 360 for ETH, Bitcoin to ETH, you got to imagine that, you know, even if half of that is just hardcore Bitcoiners that would never touch anything not Bitcoin, like that's still basically you're just creating another ETH, you know, in terms of creating new market share that didn't exist before or was too hard to transfer over. Uh, I'm pretty bullish on it, I think, on the whole. Uh, I understand the skepticism, but it just, it seems like too, it makes too much sense. And it's definitely at least worth trying for sure. I think, it, I think that's the, the main takeaway here. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I interesting. Think so. I mean, most most hardcore Bitcoiners, you know, aren't going to do anything here, but there's a lot of Bitcoiners. I mean, and um, a lot of people own Bitcoin, right? So like, you know, I think to, it's, it's, it's more of a growth hack for Avalanche and its ecosystem than, than sort of something designed by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. Um, but a lot of people own Bitcoin and if they can, you know, if they want to do something on Avalanche, like now, now maybe they can't. At the very least, you're reducing the amount of taxable events. Even if you just had some Bitcoin and you just wanted to like, you know, you're reducing the number of steps. You don't have to switch it into ETH to, to do any of this smart contract stuff. So that, that in and of itself is super yeah. valuable, I think. Well, we won't hash it out either, but we already discussed the uh, risks in bridging. Um, so, you know, yeah. let's also hope that those are well-designed and, um, you know, in general, that's, there's always risk there. Um, so that's, but, but yeah, I mean, look, fascinating development, really interesting to see these altcoin uh, projects, you know, trying to interact with Bitcoin and Bitcoin um, hodlers and, um, you know, sort of bring some of Bitcoin's value to their networks um, by, by rather than, you know, siphoning it really sort of by interacting with it, right, or, or locking it. Um, quite interesting. All right, let's wrap it up. Before we do, let's talk about a couple other random things. Let's do our quick takes. Um, you know, the, the Fed raised rates 25 bips last week uh sort of as expected and i think that the level of certainty that that brought to markets um or, or i should say removing a lot of uncertainty um saw so most markets rise significantly last week equities went on a great run um you know bitcoin was up about 10 percent week over week um eth too right and, and and crypto anybody have any quick takes on this uh the fed <laughs> these um you know I wouldn't say they have a credibly unchanging monetary policy. That's that's for sure, but but some certainty, I guess, coming to markets. Yeah, I think I think um, investors and and uh, institutional investors and retail investors around the world uh, just wanted that certainty and also just wanted to know that there was an acknowledgement that inflation was out of hand. So having that formal acknowledgement that it's there, we're attacking it, and we're on top of it, was I think the the perfect nail in the coffin to 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 add some certainty to the market. Yeah, it's tough, too, because the Fed can't really um, do much for inflation that's generated by supply issues, um, as we're seeing with things like, 
you know, the lingering COVID supply chain stuff, but also the conflict in Ukraine and the sort of, you know, variety of, of commodity related supply crunches that that's causing. So um, we'll see if they can actually put a, the dent in inflation they want to. But of course, you know, trying to do something um, which many people said was long overdue, um, I guess, is being seen mostly as a positive. And and I guess markets expecting six or seven more rate hikes this year. So we'll we'll see what happens. And some calling for a double a double hike, right, of fifty bips, uh, uh, perhaps. But anyway, that that occurred last week. I it, I think it happened direct, like a minute or so after we recorded our first podcast episode last week. Um, wh- what else? What else do you guys want to raise real quick? I mean, Christina, you looked like you had something on your mind that was interesting uh, as a as a uh, a quick take or a quick item. I thought the news that the Malaysian government official pushing for BTC as legal tender was quite interesting. Could Malaysia <laughs> be the next country after El Salvador? Who knows? Um, yeah. And then also one thing, Lul, that you had mentioned in our, our meeting previously is the NATO summit happening today and tomorrow. Actually, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's um, going to be a, a pretty significant summit because head of heads of state will be there. I think it's in Brussels. Uh, so today and tomorrow, there's a couple narratives that are expected to be pushed out of it, uh, specifically on NATO resilience and this idea of deglobalization. So I think they're going to um, announce some type of partnership that will allow them to be less um, less uh, um, uh, uh, reliant on on China. And, and Eastern powers. So that's, I think that's what's being debated and they're hoping another resolution will come out to, uh, that will apply to the Ukraine-Russia war. So I think a lot of people and a, a lot of investors have their eyes on that um, and for the future. For, for, uh, really wild, like it, we really are seeing like a uh, reshaping of the world order here, um, a bifurcation or trifurcation. I think we called it last week, we were talking about the monetary order, but, but I mean, this is, um, a strengthening of transatlantic alliances here and in the face of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's really hard to, to foresee all the changes that could come from this, but clearly they, they're significant. Um, we, we talked a lot last week about, you know, perhaps the, the effect on the dollar's status as a reserve currency, but um, lots of stuff here happening on, on the geopolitical front. Yeah, the, 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 it's really interesting because crypto kind of com- keeps... Um, being a, a, a polar point in this, because as this deglobalization happening, cross-border payments become more difficult and they will continue to be more difficult. Um, so, so the idea that crypto can alleviate that um, becomes more and, and more viable. Yeah, I mean, crypto um, and, and uh, is sort of the, it's maybe the third power here, right? You've got sort of the Russia-China axis and then the sort of whatever this transatlantic alliance ends up looking like, um, you know, NATO at all, um, the West. And then you've got this sort of neutral neutrality of, of Bitcoin and, and other crypto, uh, crypto networks. Let's hope that we don't have a total uh, bifurcation of the internet itself, which can, can certainly affect and make it difficult to use crypto or, or other information technologies in general. Um, obviously, we're seeing that a little bit. You have the great, you have the great firewall in China. You've got Russia, sort of, you know, really disconnecting from a lot of internet services, and and so that that'll be something to watch too. Um, something I was looking at is sort of increased discussion about future Bitcoin upgrades. Um, in particular, the two that I'm excited about that are under sort of discussion is Opcheck Template Verify, which is BIP one nineteen, and then 
Um, SIGHASH AnyPrev out, uh, which is also an important uh, upgrade, both sort of being discussed simultaneously by a lot of folks. But one of the reasons that uh, I was thinking about SIGHASH AnyPrev out was that uh, a report was released, um, a proposal for a coin pool, which is kind of a, uh, think of it like um, um, it's an off-chain protocol for sort of multiple users uh, transacting in a pool uh, using sort of the same UTXOs, right, UTXOs. So um, it's sort of basically like a channel factory, uh, which is something people have discussed with Lightning, but essentially it's a, except that you can withdraw from the pool um, without actually everyone having to withdraw from the channel factory. Um, so it's kind of like a multi-party multi payment channel. Um, really interesting for privacy and for um, scalability, but not possible without uh, an upgrade to Bitcoin that in, in, in this case, specifically Sikash any prev out. Uh, but, you know, we'd love to see some of these upgrades come We're sort of Bitcoiners in the Bitcoin community haven't really come to a consensus on what the next upgrade even should be, let alone uh, start working on it. So uh, we're probably talking a few years away before anything like this happens after we just spent so long working and getting Taproot um, activated. Um, all right, let's call it. That's it. Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to Galaxy Brains. This was episode two of... Uh, Galaxy Digital Research's weekly uh, podcast. Uh, thanks for joining and have a great weekend.